the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, where we will bring you the latest headlines. We'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news and we'll do a little celebrating as well. Today happens to be Oregon's birthday. It happens to be Valentine's Day. It happens to be National Tortellini Day. And it's either the eve of, um, what is it, single day? It's uh, National, let me look here, National Singles Day. I think that's it. Let me look here. I'm just, I'm going to figure this out. Oh, Singleness Awareness Day. There you go. Singleness Awareness Day. Like February the 14th doesn't make people aware enough. You have to set aside a day to focus on that aside from it. Anyway, we're going to get into all of that. We'll also share with you our interview of the week. This week will feature Dave Harvey. I still do growing closer and stronger through life's defining moments. All of that and James Blend. Ladies and gentlemen, it just might blow your mind. So be prepared and uh, have plenty of paper towels handy. First, taking a look at the day's news with the populist Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont now considered the front runner in the race for the Democratic nomination. Although I think you can dispute that if you look at the whole nation. That's a little aside. Concern and resistance is growing among mainstream and establishment Democrats inside and outside the nation's capital. Moderate lawmakers sounded the alarm bells on Thursday. Chad Pergram and Marissa Schultz reported from Capitol Hill saying it's bad. One freshman Democrat from a swing district said we're having conversations about how to deal with this. If Sanders is the nominee, we lose, another said. Well, two other vulnerable Democrats said uh, Sanders' nomination would almost certainly cede their states to President Trump and could hurt their down-ballot races for the House and Senate. The White House says President Trump isn't bothered or deterred about Attorney General Bill Barr's um, ABC News interview on Thursday, saying that the president's tweets make it impossible for him to do his job in an unusual swipe at the president. And although Barr emphasized that Trump has never asked him to do anything in a criminal case, There are some Democrats who won't believe virtually anything, he says. Barr's unexpected comments came days after the president in a late night tweet earlier this week criticized career Justice Department prosecutors for recommending a nine year prison sentence for his former uh, advisor, Roger Stone. Senior DOJ uh, leaders then intervened and adjusted the sentencing recommendation downward, saying it was clearly excessive given Stone's obstruction related offenses. All four prosecutors on the case stepped down within hours. I mean, their job was almost done anyway, but it was a dramatic move. I think it's time to stop the tweeting about Department of Justice criminal cases, Barr said. I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody, whether it's Congress, a newspaper editorial board, or the president. Barr continued, I'm going to do what I think is right, and you know, I cannot do my job at the department with a constant background commentary that undercuts me. 
In other news, China on Friday reported another sharp rise in the number of people infected with the coronavirus as the death toll neared 1,400. The National Health Commission said 121 more people had died and there were 5,090 new confirmed cases. The illness, officially known as COVID-19, has killed nearly 1,400 people worldwide and sickened more than 64,000 others. The vast majority of the cases are in mainland China, where the virus first began in the Hubei province. There are now 63,851 confirmed cases in mainland China, of which 1,380 have died. Well, the Trump administration has diverted $3.8 billion in Pentagon funding to a border wall. And YouTube is nixing a video of Rand Paul mentioning the alleged whistleblower's name during the impeachment trial. And federal taxes and spending set records through January. Hope Hicks is returning to uh, the Trump White House as senior advisor. And Huawei, uh, they're charged with racketeering and defying U.S. sanctions in business with Iran and North Korea by the U.S. You can find out more at National Review. McClatchy, the publisher of dozens of U.S. newspapers, files for bankruptcy protection. And a man has been arrested for attacking a 15-year-old Trump supporter in New Hampshire. Hmm. On this day in history, 1929, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Seven members and associates of Chicago's Northside Gang are gunned down in a hail of bullets resembling a firing squad. Al Capone is widely believed to have ordered the hit but is never officially tied to the killings. On this day in history, 1876, inventor um, Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray apply separately for patents related to the telephone. The U.S. Supreme Court eventually rules Bell the rightful inventor. And on this day in 1920, the League of Women Voters is founded by Carrie Chapman Catt in Chicago during the convention of the National American Women Suffrage Association. NASCAR holds its first race on this day in history, 1948, for modified stock cars on a 3.2-mile course at Daytona Beach, Florida. On this day in history, 1962, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy gives a tour of the White House shown on television, which three out of four Americans watch. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, a gunman identified as a former student opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School near Fort Lauderdale, Florida, killing 17 people in the nation's deadliest school shooting since the attack in Newtown, Connecticut, more than five years earlier. Well, former liberal media darling and frequent CNN guest Michael Avenatti won't be offering anti-Trump talking points on cable news anytime soon after the disgraced lawyer on Friday was found guilty of trying to extort Nike. A New York jury found Avenatti, 48, guilty of three counts, or rather on three counts, including extortion, wire fraud, and transmission of interstate communications with intent to extort. He faces up to 42 years in prison and didn't testify in the case against him. Back in 2018, a Media Research Center study revealed that Avenatti, who represented a Porn star in a lawsuit against the president appeared on CNN a whopping 74 times over a 10-week period. And the network's in-house media critic famously declared the now-disgraced lawyer was a legitimate threat to challenge Trump in the 2020 presidential election. Well, Stetler told Avenatti on air, looking ahead to 2020, one of the reasons why I'm taking you seriously as a 2020 presidential contender is because of your presence on cable news. Didn't quite work out that way. At the height of Avenatti's fame, he spent his rare time away from CNN's uh, green room, partying with the network anchors while regularly appearing on late night shows, MSNBC and The View. Juanita Scarlett, a former aide to Andrew Cuomo, the Democratic governor of New York and brother of CNN host Chris Cuomo, once tweeted, 
and then deleted a photo of herself with Avenatti and another CNN host, Don Lemon, who apparently hosted a bash at his posh Hamptons home. Well, it's not clear how many other CNN personalities were at Lemon's Sag Harbor soiree, but it was clear Avenatti had a cozy relationship with the liberal network prior to his drastic fall from grace. And the Department of Justice has tapped an outside prosecutor to review the case of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. A senior Justice Department official said on Friday that Jeff Jensen, the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri, has been assigned to Flynn's case. Now, Jensen will be working hand in hand with the lead prosecutor of Flynn's case, Brandon Van Grack, according to the official. The case against the former U.S. Army Lieutenant General has gone through years of twists and turns with sentencing postponed repeatedly over the last two years. Flynn's supporters have insisted he's innocent, but was forced to plead guilty when his son was threatened with prosecution and he exhausted his financial resources. The announcement of the review of Flynn's case comes amid a tumultuous week at the Justice Department. On Monday, federal prosecutors recommended a sentence of between 87 and 108 months in the prison in prison, rather, for Trump associate and GOP operative Roger Stone after he was convicted on seven counts of obstruction, witness tampering, and making false statements to Congress on charges that stemmed from former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. But in a stunning reversal, uh, leadership at the Justice Department overruled the prosecutors on that case. Well, the probe into Flynn's case, though, comes as the timeline for the former National Security Advisor's sentencing remains at a standstill. Last month, Flynn and his then-attorney Sidney Powell moved to withdraw his guilty plea for making false statements to the FBI about his communications and conversations with former Russian Ambassador Kislyak, which stemmed from Mueller's probe as well. Powell, in the filing, said the move to withdraw his guilty plea was because of the government's bad faith, vindictiveness, and breach of the plea agreement. The prosecution has shown abject bad faith and pure retaliation against Mr. Flynn since he retained new counsel. She wrote, this can only be because with new unconflicted counsel, Mr. Flynn refused to lie for the prosecution. The filing went on to say justice is not a game and there should be no room for such gamesmanship in the Department of Justice. Flynn's move to request a withdrawal of his uh, guilty plea came just a day after the Justice Department reversed course on recommending up to six months of prison time for him, alleging he was not fully cooperating or accepting responsibility for his actions. And the Justice Department today said it will not pursue criminal charges against former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. After a nearly two-year-long investigation, into accusations brought by the agency's independent watchdog, who found that he lacked candor when questioned about leaking to the media. In a letter to McCabe's attorney, Michael Bromwich, uh, Justice Department attorney J.P. Cooney said the investigation is now closed. Needless to say, Mr. McCabe was quite relieved and suggested this should have been the case many, many months ago. Again, the Department of Justice will not pursue criminal charges against Andrew McCabe. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll say happy birthday to the state of Oregon. We'll also remember that today is Valentine's Day. Take a little look back at some of that history and much, much more. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a rather dramatic shift. We are now focusing our attention for the next several segments on the lighter side of the news, stuff we wouldn't typically have time to cover during the course of a very serious, somber week on The Georgine Rice Show. We want to begin by announcing that today is a big day for the state of Oregon. February 14th is not only Valentine's Day. 
It also marks Oregon's birthday. The Beaver State turns 161 years old. I guess you say years old today. Uh, Oregon was officially admitted to the Union in 1859 as the 33rd state. Britain, by the way, never fully governed Oregon. It's always been independent. From its rushing rivers to the scenic coast and magnificent mountains, Oregon has much to offer its residents and visitors. Happy birthday, Oregon. Well, I thought in honor of Oregon's birthday, and uh, you can let me know if you are aware of some of these facts, I would uh, share some facts and trivia about the state we live in. I know you're a native New Yorker. I was born and raised right here in Oregon, uh, right here in the Portland metro area, in fact. And so I thought uh, we'd just shine a little light on Oregon, my Oregon. Okay. Oregon state flag pictures a beaver on its reverse side. It's the only state flag to carry two separate designs. So you've got the front that has the logo or the emblem. I'm not sure how you would describe it. But on the back side is the beaver. We're the only state that has that. Take that, Washington. Two images. Two images. Absolutely. Oregon has more ghost towns than any other state. That's because of our tax structure, I'm certain. I would think so. Yeah, the Columbia River Gorge is considered by many to be the best place in the world for windsurfing. We share that with Washington. So Crater Lake is the deepest lake in the United States and is formed in the the remains of an ancient volcano. Oregon and New Jersey are the only states without self-serve gas stations. May it never change. Eugene was the first city to have a one-way street. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I attended uh, university in Eugene. Pilot Butte, a cinder cone volcano, exists within the city limits of Bend. At 329 feet, the coast Douglas fir in Oregon is considered the tallest tree in the state. 329 feet. At 8,000 feet deep, Hell's Canyon is the deepest river gorge in North America, right here in Oregon. The hazelnut is Oregon's official state nut. Uh, Oregon is the only state that has an official state nut, which makes perfect sense, especially in the 21st century. The hazelnut is also known as the filbert. Oregon's state birthday, as I mentioned, is today. The Oregon pioneer statue that uh, tops the Capitol building is a work of Ulrich Ellerhusen. This heroic figure represents the spirit of Oregon's early settlers. And the state park system has 159 yurts located in 19 parks. Yurts are a circular dome tent uh, suited for camping. It's sort of the um, Anglo-Saxon version of a teepee, I suppose. Navy blue and gold are Oregon's official state colors. The Chinook salmon is Oregon's official state fish. The Willamette River was discovered in 1792. Do you know by whom? Um, No, because that's well before Lewis and Clark, isn't it? Yeah, I have no idea. Just thought you might know. No, I don't. In in, uh, In 1858, the richest gold find in the Cascade Mountains was discovered in the Bohemia Mining District at Sharps Creek near Cottage Grove. Uh, Doris Ranch in Springfield became the first commercial filbert orchard in the state, right there in uh, Springfield. In 1876, the University of Oregon opened in Eugene. Uh, Dee Dee Hall was the first building on campus and still exists. Spent time coming and going from Dee Dee Hall. In 1880, a sea, uh, sea cave was discovered near what is now known as Florence. The Sea Lion Caves is known to be the largest sea lion cave in the world, right here in the state of Oregon. The nation's most photographed lighthouse is the Hasita Head Lighthouse located in Lane County. 
Darlingtonia Wayside is Oregon's only rare plant sanctuary. Do you know where that is, James? I do not, actually. No idea. I haven't a clue. Oregon's second highest waterfall is Salt Creek Falls in the Cascade Mountain Range. It drops 286 feet. I'll have to put that on my bucket list. I'd love to see that. But at the same time, definitely don't go down it in a bucket. Okay, I'll make note of that, too. Okay. In my dotage, I mean... <laughs> I may not remember that. Yeah, it's now, a what good was thing it James told me not to do to get in a bucket? I can't really remember. The H.G. Andrews Experimental Forest is one of the largest long-term ecological research sites in the United States, right here in Oregon. Uh, Eugene is rated by Bicycling Magazine as one of the top 10 cycling communities in the United States. Certainly the best place for running, I'll add. There are nine lighthouses standing along the coastline in Oregon. Five are still being used. The others are designated historic monuments. Portland is an example of outstanding urban planning, unless, of course, you live here and then you know otherwise. Anyway, the city is known as the City of Roses. When I was growing up as Georgine Yvonne Rose, I thought the city was named for my family. You cannot imagine my disappointment when I realized it was for the flowers that grow here. I mean, who knew? I can't imagine. I also thought the uh, mall, the, the Lloyd Center, I thought it was the Lord Center, and I thought it was some sort of a worship facility. So I didn't quite catch things. Um, I wish it was, but anyway, when I was younger. Well, yeah, I could see how that would be preferable. I was a church girl, the Lord Center. This is where you go to shop and worship you Jesus. You get a better deal at the Lord Center, just saying. <laughs> Um, high above the city of Portland, the International Rose Test Garden features more than 500 varieties of roses cultivated continuously since 1917. Impressive, beautiful sight. I just wonder, when's the test over? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've always kind of wondered that. It's always been a test garden. It's like, I mean, I would hate when that. When are you going to get I'm, it right? It's like, it's like <laughs> how many years do I have to take this test? <laughs> you haven't passed yet. At 11,239 feet, Mount Hood stands as the tallest peak in Oregon. Mount Hood is a dominant, or rather a dormant volcano. It is dominant as well, but it's dormant volcano. Silver Falls State Park is, the Oregon's, is uh, Oregon's largest state park. It features 10 waterfalls, contains a wide variety of forested hiking trails. Crater Lake is the deepest lake in the United States. It was formed more than 6,500 years ago. Its crystal blue waters are world-renowned. Discovered in 1874, the caves located in Oregon Caves National Monument are carved within solid marble. And the world's largest rosary collection is exhibited at the Columbia Gorge Interpretive Center. A local resident collected the exhibit, and it's now available for all to see. Oh, but wait, there's more. The Carousel Museum contains the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of carousel horses right here in the state of Oregon. I went there once. I kind of felt like I got the runaround. (laughs) And there are horses, and you don't really care for them. There is that. Fort Clatsop National Memorials contains a replica of Lewis and Clark's 1805-1806 winter outpost. It's kind of a fun thing to visit. The small village of Bickleton is uh, filled with bluebird houses seen on the on the post of every house. Now, this is news to me. I don't know where that is or what it means, but there you have it. The Columbia Gorge National Scenic Area is a spectacular river canyon cutting the only sea level route through the Cascade Mountain Range. The Reese Thompson House is the oldest remaining residence in Parkdale, built circa 1900. The home and area offer a commanding view of Mount Hood. Tillamook is home to Oregon's largest cheese factory. And Florence is known as Oregon's rhododendron capital. I've always wondered about the term commanding view. It's like, don't tell me what to look at. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to look at what I want to look at. Keep, I, keep your eyes down and just uh-huh. deprive it of that whole renown. Um, let's see. Uh, the Oregon legislature designated the Oregon Grape... Mahonia aquifolium 
as the Oregon State flower by resolution in 1899. The Oregon grape is Oregon's flower, state flower. Oregon's Capitol building is located in Salem. Earlier capitals include the cities of Oregon City and Corvallis. Who knew? The Columbia River forms most of the northern border between Oregon and Washington. The Snake River forms over half of the eastern boundary with Idaho. And in 1905, the largest log cabin, actually long cabin in the world, was built in Portland to honor the Lewis and Clark expedition. And didn't that burn down? I feel like it Yeah, did. the forest, forestry center. Maybe I'm confusing those two things. Anyway, a treaty between the United States and Spain established the current southern border between Oregon and California. The treaty was signed in 1819. The Oregon Trail is the longest of the overland routes used in the westward expansion of the United States. And the Tillamook Naval Air Museum is housed in the world's largest wooden clearspan building. Haystack Rock off of Cannon Beach is 235 feet high and is the third largest coastal monolith in the world. The Tillamook Rock Lighthouse, built in 1880, is currently used as the site of the final resting place of up to 467,000 cremated individuals. Watch your step. And the Seaside Aquarium was the first facility in the world to successfully breed harbor seals in activity. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Oregon, the 33rd state admitted to the Union on its birthday, February 14th, 1859. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about that other thing that's going on today, the 14th of February. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. We're taking a look at the lighter side of some of the news. Today happens to be Valentine's Day. Whether you're coupled, single, celebrating Galentine's Day, or eulogizing the end of cuffing season, when Valentine's Day hits on February 14th, we are inexorably forced to reflect on that status. Now, I realize, James, yes. you and wife Selena have decided that Valentine's Day is meaningless to you, and you refer to it as beheading, beheading day. day. Yes, Because rather than the birthday of St. Valentine, as we know him, it's actually the day that he was beheaded. Yes, he was martyred on this day in what, 269 A.D., I believe. 270. 270. 270 A.D. Close. I was close. Yeah. Wow. To go that far back and be within a year, I feel pretty good about myself, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm it's quite the, impressed. It's, it, I go with the Bob Barker rule, um, the closest without going over. There you go. I'm very impressed, to be so. quite honest. Well, um, Valentine, the saint, lived in the 300s under the rule of Emperor Claudius II. He decided to outlaw marriage because he wanted his soldiers ready for battle at all times and not worried about returning home to their wives and kids. That's where the romantic Saint Valentine came in. Of course, he wasn't a saint at the time, but Mr. Valentine, for lack of his first name, (laughs) and started performing marriages in private for young lovers. Well, Lewis explains that um, Emperor Claudius II soon found out about St. Valentine's secret, or rather Mr. Valentine's secret marriage ceremonies, and sent him to jail to be executed. Before Mr. Valentine was executed, however, uh, he fell in love with his prison guard's daughter, who would come to visit him in his cell. Well, from that very cell, Mr. Valentine actually ended up writing the first Valentine, as we come to know it, 
and signed it from your valentine, which is a term that is still in use today. Now, doesn't that just tug on your heartstrings? Yeah, but what happened next? (laughs) Well, he was pretty much killed. Um, Also, the 14th century poet Geoffrey Chaucer also helped lay out the present day idea of Valentine's Day, rather, in his poem, The Parliament of Fowls. Chaucer talked about the coupling on St. Valentine's Day and made it a romantic notion. So he's the one who kind of romanticized a um, pagan holiday that had recently been more Christianized to celebrate a day of love. Well, the professional matchmaker explained that by the 1800s, people were writing their um, loved ones handwritten notes and giving them small gifts. Um, But with the advancement of technology, printed Valentine's Day cards began to catch on. And for the most part, we allow other people to write what we want to say to our loved ones for us. There's actually 145 million Valentine's cards sent in the U.S. every year. And those are just the ones that are sent, making it the second largest card giving holiday, second after Christmas, which is mind blowing. If you think about all the money spent, the millions of dollars spent on Valentine's Day, we've essentially lost the uh, ability to write to one another. So we rely on somebody else's poetry Mother, mother, love you, dear. Hope you have a day of cheer. <laughs> I am going, but I'll be near. I am sure glad you're here. Love me. I mean, not love me, but love from me. Right. Yeah. I mean, we rely. You go through those cards and you see the picture and you think, oh, here's a good one. And then nah, 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 nah. no, well, that's not good. And now you, you don't even that, see that, 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 that. You know, now you don't even see that all the time. You, you see a lot of I, I saw, especially for kids and stuff, uh, as looking for uh, you know, Valentine's Day cards for my daughter to bring into her preschool, mm-hmm. is everybody does that. So peer pressure is what peer no, pressure d- please, is. Please, before you, know. you go on, please tell me you didn't give her cards that said Happy Beheading Day. No, unfortunately, they don't have them for that age range. Oh, I'm so grateful. Go ahead, please. I've thought about creating them and marketing them, however. <laughs> no. So anyway, uh, you were going but, to get the cards. But uh, I- I'm seeing cards now that are just emojis. Yeah. It's not even words. We essentially run out of ideas. That's We have that's essentially part of run out of but ideas. What's, what's threatening, though, is you see a beautiful card. Oh, this is the perfect card. You open it up and like, ah, there's no writing it. And I have to come up with something on my own. I have to think through this. I have to say something meaningful from my own heart. Yeah, most people do not know what to do with no. that. They, they really open a card and go, uh, yeah, I believe there's been a printing error in this one. <laughs> so you just go to the card that's a little less attractive. It doesn't really present the image that you were looking for, but you open it up. I love you. Signed, exactly. Bob. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, let's see. Fox Business writes that millennials between the ages of 24 and 39 – now, I want to tell you, millennials, I know you're tired of hearing everybody talk about millennials. This, millennial, it was just like that for the baby boomers. The, of course, we weren't called baby boomers then. We were called something else by our parents and grandparents. But anyway, your time is coming to a close, and later generations will be referred to uh, with disdain, and this will all be a faint memory. But anyway, millennials between the ages of 24 and 39 are most likely to overspend on Valentine's Day than those who are from older generations, because we broke for one reason, uh, according to research from personal finance resource Bankrate. This young adult group spends uh, $208 on average for holiday romance, including gifts, dining, entertainment. Gen X, on the other hand, between the ages of 40 and 55, spend about $160 on average, while baby boomers between the ages of 56 and 74 spend about $101. 
we don't spend that much. See, I the spent card three was, bucks on those cards yeah, see, for my card daughter. Was a couple of bucks. Uh, three dollars. That was yeah. it. These varying amounts bring up the average cost uh, to $152, which is said to represent Valentine's Day spending for a typical adult in a relationship. So there you have it. M- millennials have distinguished themselves once again. It's all going to be over soon, I promise you. Uh, what comes after the um, millennials, Gen X? Yeah, they'll be the... Uh, Gen Z. I'm Gen X. You're Gen X, Will? Gen X, millennial, then what they're calling post-millennials So you're Gen or X Gen and then millennial and then yeah. Gen Z. Yeah, so you'll it'll all be over for you Although, soon. From what I understand, Gen Z is not the... I mean, I've also heard them called post-millennials. Yeah, I, I have a hard time I don't think they've settled on their up. name yet. Yeah. Because for the longest time, millennials were called Gen Y. Yeah, it's just those young people get off my grass. That's essentially what it means. Just okay, boomer. Young people just get off my grass. <laughs> Isn't that the insult? <laughs> you can't okay, do anything. boomer. <laughs> you can't do anything right. Get off my grass. Anyway, um, there you have it. There's the uh, the study. Here's uh, here's something for you to consider, James. What okay. makes people happier than money? Oh, I consider myself fairly happy, and I rarely have money. So <laughs> well, I, yeah. there have to be things. Well, according to have a, to be things. According to a new study from Yale and Oxford. Researchers from these two prestigious universities, or at least once prestigious universities, have published new findings suggesting that exercise is more important for your mental health than your bank account. So next time the mortgage uh, bill comes, I'm just going to say, you know what? Exercise is more important than my bank account. Therefore, I'm going to run a lap for you and tear up the bill. We'll see how that goes. Anyway, the benefits of routine exercise have been well documented. Blaring headlines tout weight loss, muscle gain, lower cholesterol, improved mental health, sharper focus, stronger bones, and a stronger heart, among other improvements. But a new study has shown that exercise may actually be more important to happiness than wealth, which is good news because I don't have the uh, former. In a large survey of 1.2 million Americans, researchers from Yale and Oxford universities have shown that people who exercise are markedly happier than people who don't, even if they have less income. So I'm thinking about introducing a, um, an exercise program for you and I, James. Uh, we'll come in in the morning. We'll take a couple laps, um, do some lifting. I can open up my office as kind of a a gym, and you and I can do some weightlifting in there. Um, we you can go what, to the you, lunchroom, have a couple of salads. You know, it'd be even better if we could get like a treadmill into your office. Okay, never mind. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's kind of a private joke because I did have a treadmill in my office. I will. Oh no, say, that was a very public joke. We've talked about it on this show. Yeah, I was hoping people forgot. I will say though that the first day that I set it up in my office, Clark went in and broke it. Okay, it was fully functional, but one of the little things that he aesthetically damaged it. Let's well, to, call it to what me, it is. <laughs> yes, it did fully function, but it was just a little lopsided aesthetically, and that was enough to just you didn't prevent think to me break from... that part off on the other side and make it clean, <laughs> clean and good there. Well, needless to say, I didn't exactly wear the treadmill out. Exactly. Oh, I mean, if you, if you call accumulating dust wearing out, you did. And my coworkers, bless their collective hearts, were regularly reminding me of how lovely it looked in my office and that it was not being used. Postmodern art, I believe we referred to it at a few times. I thought it was an attractive addition, which is no longer there. Okay, you've made your point. Let's move on. Please tell me that it's currently in a loving home. My self-esteem is really damaged <laughs> right now, and I'm just going to need a moment to pull myself together. <sighs> if you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, clearly I haven't exercised because I'm not happy. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, working our way through some of the lighter side of the news. Now, we've celebrated Oregon's birthday, 161 years. 
We've acknowledged Valentine's Day, but I want to let you know that if you have that kind of holiday drop-off where you feel like, oh, we just had a holiday and now there's nothing, February 15th is Single Awareness Day. That's all. I I, I mean, no, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed my single days. I I don't necessarily miss them per se, but... I think there's you know a lot more to the single life, even as Christians, and we sometimes give credit for. That being said, did they really have to choose something that the, the anagram of which is sad? <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, you don't have to be sad if you're single, but no. yeah, you're right. That's, that wasn't the best choice. Anyway, that's tomorrow. Uh, also, today happens to be National Tortellini Day. Now that I could go for. Is it any coincidence that National Tortellini Day is celebrated, well, on the 13th? Sorry, I'm a day late. The eve of Valentine's um, Day, this much-loved stuffed pasta was supposedly even inspired by the navel of Venus. Yeah, I, I don't get that. But no matter the origins and however it's garnished, you can't deny this cheesy pasta dish is lovely down to the last bite. National Tortellini Day, a day late. And let's see, it'll probably set you back about $14 short. Well, I mean, you know, the nice the nice thing is uh, that, uh, I mean, I, I kind of wish I'd known about this now that I think about it, because uh, we had tortellini on Wednesday night, so we missed it by a day on the other side. You did, well, I missed it by a day announcing So we it had an early here. celebration. We clearly couldn't wait. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, Dan's going to have tortellini tonight. Well, there you go. So, yeah. That's you know, never a bad thing. It's never a bad thing. Well, President Trump is taking part in this year's Daytona 500, not as a driver, but as a grand marshal, which means he gets to give the start your engines command to the 43 entrants of the great American race. It'll mark the first time a president, sitting or former, has ever held that role. The only other time a sitting president attended the race was when George Bush came in 2004, the year Dale Earnhardt Jr. won his first 500. Earnhardt was a Grand Marshal in 2018, will be on the stand this Sunday to wave the green flag as honorary starter. The president was endorsed in 2016 by former NASCAR CEO Brian France Jr. He's hosted um, series champions Joey Logano, Martin Troy Jr. at the White House and gave NASCAR team owner Roger Penske the Presidential Medal of Freedom last year. And while the president won't be getting on the track, his name will, just not on Sunday. Uh, Mr. Joe Nemechek will be driving a Mike Harmon racing car in the NASCAR Xfinity Series race on Saturday, sponsored by the Patriots Pack of Oregon that will have Trump Pence 2020 logos on it. So there you have it. Have you ever been a fan of uh, this uh, sports racing? I've never, been racing? A, I've never been a big car person. I'm just a, I'm in general I, from, you know, in any aspect of cars other than driving one to and from work or to and from mm-hmm. a destination. Uh, watching one drive in circles is just never. I mean, I I I appreciate that there is a skill involved and that there is a talent. It just is not something that's been appealing to me personally. You know, I really appreciate that you gave us the kind of the deeper insight into your thinking on the subject. I was looking for a last yes or no, and you know, just to get to know you better, to know how you have approached automobiles over the years and what it's meant or not meant to you. I just I feel so much closer to you right now. You, you've run out of material over there, haven't you? <laughs> You know, we're right in the middle of a political season, and there are a lot of people who are vying to live in Washington and work in the White House. The White House, or the People's House, has been part of American history since George Washington, though he's the only commander-in-chief who ever actually lived there. The first president did, however, approve the design that was submitted by Irish-born architect James Hoban. 
and an open competition for the classically inspired mansion. It began construction in 1792, was completed in 1800, one year after he ended his term as president. Well, this fact and others are provided by the White House Historical Association. It's a private nonprofit educational organization founded by former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy back in 1961. And yes, I do remember her with a mission to enhance the understanding and appreciation of the executive mansion. Well, in this election season, I thought it might be useful to learn a few facts about the executive mansion. How did the White House get its name? Not executive mansion, but White House. Most are taught that the White House was first painted white to cover the burning of the building by the British in 1814. It actually was given a lime-based whitewash in 1798 to protect its exterior stone from moisture and cracking during the winter. It was painted with white lead paint in 1818, nicknamed the White House, starting in the 1800s. In 1901, President Theodore Roosevelt officially named it the White House, though it was also called President's House and Executive Mansion previously. Uh, Roosevelt thought it was important to distinguish the official residence of the U.S. president from other executive mansions where governors of individual states reside. So whoever you happen to cast a ballot for come November, uh, you will know more about their uh, future home than perhaps they will. And when when was the uh, White House rebuilt and renovated? I know you're wondering, James. I am. I'm sitting here excited. I can't tell you. I just happen to have the answer. The White House had to uh, be rebuilt after just 14 years after it was built when the British soldiers, soldiers set fire to it in the War of 1812. Hoban, working with architect Benjamin Henry Latrobe, once again oversaw the construction as President James Madison stayed in a temporary residence. The now famous South and North Porticos were added in 1824 and 1829, respectively. I know. I know you're on the edge of your chair. Under Roosevelt, the West Wing was added in 1902. And during World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt added an underground bunker now known as the Presidential Emergency Operations Center. Bunker would have sufficed. It's under the East Wing, which generally serves as office space for the First Lady and her staff. In 1948, President Harry Truman conducted a structural rehab of the White House interior, including a new steel frame completed in 1952. And the rest, of course, is history. Well, how big is the Oval Office? We hear so much about it. And why is it oval? I know you want to know. Well, the Oval Office is 35 feet at its long axis, 29 feet at its short axis, it is 18 feet tall, begins arching or arcing around 16 feet. Altogether, today's Oval Office is from a West Wing expansion in 1909. The room's shape was inspired by the Blue Room designed by George Washington. It can be traced to a formal social greeting known as Levy from the first president. Uh, uh, he used it as a symbolic way to dramatize the office of the president. The Levy, borrowed from an English court tradition, had guests assembled in a circle to be greeted by the president instead of bowing and other gestures tip or rather bowing. I thought they were talking about the structure of the ceiling uh, bowing and other gestures typical of a levy. Uh, president Thomas Jefferson ended the practice and replaced it with a simple handshake. I would have insisted on a genuflect, but that's just me. And finally, what is the resolute desk and where did it come from? James? Yes, the resolute desk came from the queen, did it not? The history of the Resolute Desk now in the Oval Office goes all the way back to England. In 1855, a whaler named George Henry found the abandoned ship, the HMS Resolute, off Baffin Island in the Arctic. 
It was returned to the English and served the British Navy for many years after that. When the country decommissioned the ship, its oak timbers were used to create a desk weighing more than a thousand pounds, which Queen Victoria gifted to President Rutherford Hayes. Good, good, uh, good show, James. Thank you. The now famous desk has been used on the second floor of the White House, the ground floor, and most notably, the Oval Office. I don't know. I feel like my head has expanded just a little bit just because of... Uh, that information. I will admit to have cheated a little bit on that one. I mm-hmm. believe uh, the Resolute Desk was a very heavy plot point of the second National Treasure movie about 10 years ago. Oh, so, so I shouldn't be quite as impressed. I knew a little bit about it But you remembered that. it. You remembered it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I remembered am, the history of it. I am fully impressed. You have the full impressiveness-ish. You, you know... I think you should be so blown away by your impressiveness that you take a, a long break for news and traffic top of the hour to really? kind of ponder it and but, and, and, but, and and really kind of, you know, make it a part of you. Okay. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break for news, traffic, and weather at the, well, not weather, at the top of the hour for you. For me, however, I'm just going to sit and ponder the wisdom and knowledge of James Blend. It'll be a short break. Ouch. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. On a fun Friday afternoon, we're going to revisit some of the top news stories of the day. We're also going to share with you the interview of the week with Dave Harvey. I still do, growing closer and stronger through life's defining moments. But first, a look at some of the headlines. With populist Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont now considered the front runner in the race for the Democratic nomination, concern and resistance is growing among mainstream and establishment Democrats inside and outside the nation's capital. Moderate lawmakers sounded the alarm bells on Thursday. Chad Pergram and Marissa Schultz uh, reported from Capitol Hill, it's bad. One freshman Democrat from a swing state said, we're having conversations about how to deal with this. If Sanders is the nominee, we lose. Well, two other vulnerable Democrats said a Sanders nomination would almost certainly cede their states to President Trump and could hurt their down-ballot races for the House and the Senate. White House says uh, the president isn't bothered or deterred after Attorney General Bill Barr on Thursday said that the president's tweets make it impossible for me to do my job in an unusual swipe at the president, although Barr emphasized that the president has never asked him to do anything in a criminal case. Barr's unexpected comments came days after the president, in a late-night tweet earlier this week, criticized career Justice Department prosecutors for recommending a nine-year prison sentence for his former advisor, Roger Stone. Barr continues by saying, I'm going to uh, do what I think is right, and you know, I can't do my job here in the department with a constant background commentary that undercuts me. Well, China on Friday reported another sharp rise in the number of people infected with the coronavirus as the death toll neared 1,400. The National Health Commission said 121 more people had died and there were 5,090 new confirmed cases. The illness, officially known as COVID-19, has killed nearly 1,400 people worldwide and sickened more than 64,000 others. The vast majority of the cases are in mainland China, where the virus first began in the Hubei uh, province, There are now 63,851 confirmed cases in mainland China, of which 1,380 have died. Well, the Trump administration is diverting $3.8 billion in Pentagon funding to the border wall. And YouTube has uh, nixed a video of Rand Paul mentioning the alleged whistleblower's name during the impeachment trial from the Senate floor. And federal taxes and spending have set records through the month of January in a budget imbalance. Hope Hicks is returning to the Trump White House as senior advisor. And Huawei has been charged with racketeering and defying U.S. sanctions in business with Iran and North Korea. 
McClatchy, the publisher of dozens of U.S. newspapers, has filed bankruptcy protection. And a man has been arrested for attacking a 15-year-old Trump supporter in New Hampshire. Grown man, 15-year-old. Well, the Justice Department said Friday it will not pursue criminal charges against former FBI Director Andrew McCabe after a nearly two-year-long investigation into accusations brought by the agency's independent watchdog who found that he lacked candor when questioned about leaking to the media. In a letter to McCabe's attorney, Michael Bromwell, which uh, Justice Department attorney J.P. Cooney said the investigation is now closed. We write to inform you that after careful consideration, the government has decided not to pursue criminal charges against your client, Andrew G. McCabe. Well, the department added, based on the totality, uh, the totality rather of the circumstances and all the information known to the government at this time, we consider the matter closed. Well, in a statement to uh, Fox News, Bromwich and McCabe counsel David Shirtler, he confirmed they received the information through a phone call from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., They said that call was followed by the letter notifying them that the criminal investigation of Andrew McCabe had been closed. This means that no charges will be brought against him based on the facts underlying the Office of the Inspector General's April 2018 report, Bromwich and Shirtler said. At long last, justice has been done in this matter. We said at the outset of the criminal investigation almost two years ago that if the facts and the law determine the result, no charges would be brought They said, uh, we are pleased that Andrew McCabe and his family can go on with their lives without this cloud hanging over them. McCabe, a CNN contributor, appeared on CNN shortly after the news broke with his response. It was traumatic to leave the FBI, certainly in the way I did. And that's been tough to live with. McCabe added that uh, insult has been and suspicion uh, that comes with being under criminal investigation just made the entire experience a million times worse. He says he's glad the Department of Justice finally decided to do the right thing, but blasted the lengthy process. It is an absolute disgrace that they took two years to put my family through this experience for two years before they finally drew the obvious conclusion and one they could have drawn a long time ago. Well, that's the, the way Washington works. It takes a very long time. And his sentiments were echoed by the president after more than two years of ongoing investigations in his case. Well, as if his poor results in Iowa and New Hampshire weren't enough, former Vice President Joe Biden, he was met with chants of drop out Joe on Thursday night as he left a campaign fundraiser in New York City. Other protesters from the group New York Communicates for Change, or rather Communities for Change, held a mock funeral for Biden's candidacy featuring a black coffin decorated with Biden 2020 stickers. The campaign is pretty much done, one mourner said. The people have spoken. Young people have spoken, end quote. Earlier this week, the former vice president's struggles to connect with voters, despite being deemed the Democratic Party's frontrunner for the 2020 nomination, prompted him to leave New Hampshire early before the primary results were in. So we could focus on the February 22nd Nevada caucuses and the February 29th South Carolina primary, where there are much diverse populations of voters. Biden is 77. He told supporters in South Carolina on Tuesday that he wasn't anywhere close to giving up on the race. It is an important uh, it is important that Iowa and New Hampshire have spoken. But we need to hear from Nevada, South Carolina and Super Tuesday and beyond. He said we haven't heard from the most committed constituents in the Democratic Party, the African-American community or the fastest growing segment of the party, the Latino Americans. Well, Biden went on to describe the importance of the African-American and Latino votes, saying that you can't be the Democratic nominee and you can't win the Democratic nomination as a Democrat unless you have the support of black and brown voters. Notice the uh, redundancy using the word Democrat 
which is not what uh, his chief opponent is, a Democrat. On Thursday, uh, Biden was in midtown Manhattan, according Wall Street figures, as he hoped to raise at least a million dollars, according to the New York Post. Attendees at the Wayfarer restaurant event were scheduled to include former Morgan Stanley CEO John Mack, Centerview Partners executive Alan Hartman, Citigroup executive Ray McGuire, Blackstone operating chief Jonathan Gray, SNAP chairman Michael Leighton, and former Obama economic advisor Jeffrey Zients, according to the list obtained by CNBC. Biden's fourth finish in the February 3rd Iowa caucus, and even worse, fifth place finish on Tuesday's New Hampshire primary, reportedly had some backers concerned about the future of his campaign. A recent Quinnipiac poll, Quinnipiac University poll, showed Senator Bernie Sanders leading the Democratic field nationally with support from 25 percent of Democratic voters, with Biden garnering only 17 percent. Well, the feud between Bernie Sanders and James Carville has continued from from, uh, one story that appeared on The Hill. The back and forth follows a week in which Carville has repeatedly sounded the alarm about a potential Sanders matchup against President Trump in November, calling the scenario the end of days for the Democratic Party, while referring to Sanders supporters as a cult. Bernie's people fear a hijacked convention, and it certainly could be a contended uh, and uh, lengthening a convention. Meanwhile, Mr. Bloomberg is testing the theory that you can't buy major elections. Um, in other news, uh, National Right to Life Legislative Director Jennifer Popic says pro-abortion Democrats oppose this bill, referring to the Colorado Democrats' vote to kill babies born alive during abortion act. Uh, you cannot, uh, she says, pro-abortion Democrats oppose this bill, and they should be forced to explain why their allegiance to the abortion industry's agenda should allow a practice that is tantamount to infanticide. And YouTube has removed a video of Senator um, uh, Rand Paul saying the name of the Ukraine whistleblower. It is a chilling and disturbing day in America when giant web companies such as YouTube decide to censure speech, he told Politico, which first reported the story. Now even protected speech, such as that of a senator on the Senate floor, can be blocked from getting to the American people. This is dangerous and politically biased. Nowhere in my speech did I accuse anyone of being a whistleblower, nor do I know the whistleblower's identity. Meanwhile, the Houston Astros, they're apologizing for cheating and hope it ends there. Some better than others. Several saying that they wish they'd done something to stop it. Uh, One L.A. sports writer said listening to the Houston Astros attempt to show remorse for the sign stealing scandal Thursday was like listening to a guy apologizing for stealing that shiny Cadillac still sitting in his driveway. It's now his car. So why should he worry? Later, Rob Manfred the, said the weak-kneed baseball commissioner, who is little more than a puppet for the owners who employs him, needs to apologize to the baseball world for not ordering that the Astros vacate the 2017 World Series championship. And the Wall Street Journal, in an op-ed, science confirms there is only male and female. The article explains no third type of sex cell exists in humans, and therefore there is no sex spectrum or additional sexes beyond male and female, sex is binary. And Samantha B has attacked PragerU. PragerU has some fun with it and even used it to raise some funds. The attack on PragerU completely backfired. And HGTV's House Hunters is now featuring a thruple. It's a new word, two women and a man. I'll just leave it at that. New York Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo visited the White House on Thursday in hopes he could persuade the president to reverse a recent decision to 
Boot New Yorkers from Global Entry and several other trusted traveler programs, which allow travelers to avoid long lines at the U.S. border. He was unpersuaded. Little was accomplished. Up next, we're going to hear the interview of the week. Dave Harvey, I still do, growing closer and stronger through life's defining moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I will pause a moment of silence because the show is ending. I know I'm sad, too. But I do get to go home and see Dan Rice. It's Valentine's Day. Who knows what might await me there? I'm prepared for absolutely nothing, but I'm also prepared for the possibility that there might be chocolates. I do like chocolates in a pretty box, in a pretty red box. Dan Rice, just saying, I'm perfectly prepared for there to be absolutely nothing. He doesn't owe me anything. We've been married 37 years. It's been a good run. But I do like chocolates in a pretty box. Just saying. Pretty fond of flowers, too. Just <laughs> I have a flower garden in the summer. I grow them myself, but uh, I do like flowers. The roses are really nice. But I'm perfectly prepared. There's no obligation here. I don't feel entitled. There's no requirement. There's not going to be any backlash. I'm just prepared for whatever happens when I get home. I just hope he's prepared for what happens when I get home. If there are no chocolates and there are no flowers, which I'm, of course, not entitled to. <clears throat> but I digress. Yeah. James, you look like you want to say something. I've seen a couple people say that uh, the, the real holiday is uh, February 15th when all the candy 60% off. Yes, that's true. I, I could actually see celebrating that, to be perfectly honest. That that 60% off chocolate sounds actually appealing. Yeah, if I, you know, I, I wouldn't mind being a discount wife. So I would, I would, these what years I would almost mind. Cooking now, and if, cleaning. If, and, if, I, if I were uh-huh. someone who was going to receive receive chocolates mm-hmm. on, on said holiday, I think I would be like, I tell you what, you give me the cash for what you would have spent on it on Valentine's Day, and then I'll go spend it on candy the day after Valentine's yeah, that's Day just and what double I'm, my investment. Just what I'm looking for is to me to get the money, then have to go to the store myself, hey, and then pick it out myself, and then bring it home myself. I mean, that's what the holiday really is all about. Just extort the money from your husband and go buy the candy. No, but I'm the whole, thinking... The whole holiday is extortion. Well, of course it is, but... <laughs> Laundry and meals, grocery shopping. ROI. That's all I have to say. ROI. Okay. But again, I, as a Christian woman, I don't feel a sense of entitlement. He doesn't owe me anything. There's not going to be much retaliation. Much. Uh, taking a look at next week on the program, should uh, should I survive the weekend. Uh, on Monday, it's President's Day. I wrote on here Veterans Day, didn't I, James? Monday is President's Day, and I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity, uh, we get the day off. I'm so excited we get the day off. Anyway, I'll try to contain myself. Um, uh, There are a number of really good programs about presidents. If you have the opportunity to watch one of them, it's kind of a good way to reflect on those who have led the country. Anyway, Monday is President's Day, and uh, you will have the opportunity to listen to one of the best of the Georgine Rice Show interviews from the last who knows what period. On Tuesday, we'll talk with Phil Waldrop. He's the author of Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again. Now, one of the reasons I scheduled that the Tuesday after the Valentine's Day is because I may need to take notes in this um, in this interview, Overcome Past Hurts, because if I get home and there's nothing, I'm going to need to talk to Phil Waldrop. For others of you, you may need to listen in as well. That's coming up on Tuesday. Wednesday is our India Partners Radiothon. You've probably been hearing a little bit about that already. We're running some spots to give you some indication of uh, what our focus will be. I'm really looking forward to giving you an opportunity to uh, learn what India Partners is doing as a result of your generosity in the past 
and how that has provided the opportunity that we're going to be focusing on at present. So I'm looking forward to that. And you might recall in 2018, it was the fall of 2018, October, November, I spent some time with India Partners and traveled there with them. And I'm I'm just so thrilled about the work that they're doing and the people on the ground there who are doing the work. So we'll talk about all of that on Wednesday with the India Partners Radiothon. On Thursday, we'll talk with Alan Ayler, author of How to Make Big Decisions Wisely, a biblical and scientific guide to healthier habits, less stress, a better career, and much more. Wow, this sounds like one of those books that's uh, better than sliced bread. So you're not going to want to miss that. Alan Ayler, How to um, Make Big Decisions Wisely, and that's coming up on Thursday. Friday, we're right back here taking a look at the lighter side of the news. So I hope you will join us. That's a week from today. I think that covers it, James. Did I leave anything out? Did you want to um, say anything to me about Valentine's Day? You know, that... Well, what a I pleasure it is to work with me. It and you desire. I hope you get out of it what you would you, like you know, to get out of it. It's just really been a joy for you to work with me day after day for these many, what, 15 years? It's 16, but thanks. Is it 16? Yeah, it is. Okay, for these 16 years, did you want to say anything like that on this day in which people are, you know, feeling kind of warm and friendly toward one another? No, not really, especially after you forgot how many years it is. That That's going to be a thing now. It's a thing now? Oh, for crying out loud. Well, let me encourage you to listen to the program on Tuesday I'll be talking with Phil Waldrop, Beyond Betrayal, Overcoming Past Hurts, and Begin to Trust Again. You're going to need it. want to thank James Blend for producing today's program and actually engineering as well. And thank you for making the Georgie and Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. And for those of you who get President's Day off, <laughs> I'll be joining it with you. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.